Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Luke Proctor. I'm the associate minister here at PCC. I'd like to welcome you here today. Uh, I gotta start off just by warning you this morning, though, that the text I'm preaching on today is 172 verses long. Uh, yeah, so a couple months ago, I preached a sermon on one verse of the Bible that lasted 30 minutes. <laughs> and so at that pace, it's gonna take us 86 hours to get through this. So I hope you packed a lunch today and a pillow. Um, actually, by the way, did you know that if you took all the people in church who fell asleep during the sermon and you laid them out on the floor end to end, they would be a lot more comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> Today we're going to be in Exodus chapters 5 through 10, and we are going to witness a battle of the gods. So far in the book of Exodus, we've been walking through the life of Moses, and we saw that Moses grew up as a prince of Egypt for the first 40 years of his life, and then he spent the next 40 years of his life as a nobody. He was just a a sheep herder in the wilderness. But then last week, we saw that God met Moses at a burning bush, and he called him to go back to Egypt, the country he'd fled from and to confront Pharaoh and to tell him to let the Israelites, God's people, the slaves, to let God's people go. And so in this dramatic confrontation that we're gonna get to today, we have one puny little sheep farmer (laughs) against the most powerful kingdom on earth. But this is really a lot more than that, actually. This text today is a battle of the gods, and in the text today, you'll actually, it's kind of framed like a boxing match. Now, I don't really watch boxing. Um, I do love the Rocky movies, all 47 of them, you know? Um, but I want you to view this text today kind of like a boxing match. And in order, in one corner of the ring over here, we have Pharaoh. And we have Pharaoh, he's got the heavyweight belt. He's the most powerful guy in the world. He's the emperor of the strongest empire on the planet. And in fact, the people worship him like he's a god. He thinks he's a god. The people thinks he's a god. And in his corner with him, he's got dozens and dozens of other Egyptians gods. The Egyptians worship dozens, maybe even hundreds or thousands of gods. So we got them over in one corner. And then in the other corner, we've got, well, two elderly gentlemen with a stick. (laughs) We've got Moses and Aaron. They're each in their 80s. Moses, he spent the last 40, or excuse me, yeah, 40 years, four decades just talking to sheep. And then we got Aaron. He's even older than Moses, and he's an ex-slave. This doesn't look like it's going to be much of a fight. But when Moses and Aaron confront Pharaoh for the first time, we have this dramatic moment here. Exodus chapter five, verses one and two. It says, afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? that I should obey him and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Remember that, by the way. Pharaoh asked, who's the Lord? I don't know him. He won't be saying that by the end of our text. And so this, this confrontation we have really is a battle between the gods. On the one side, we've got our God, the great I am. We learned his name last week at the burning bush against all the gods of Egypt. And so ding, 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 the fight begins And Moses comes out, round one, he comes out swinging. God tells Moses to go down to the banks of the Nile River. Now, you probably know already that the Nile is the longest river in the world, and it's in Egypt, and Egypt is a desert, so it's really, really, really dry. And so basically, the Nile was their source of life. Their crops, their drinking water, they relied on the Nile River for everything. It was a symbol of life to them. In fact, they worshiped the Nile River gods. They had gods to protect the fish and to protect the Nile, and the god of the spirit of the Nile. This is the god of the spirit of the Nile River. But 
even though it was a symbol of life to the Egyptians, the Nile River to the Hebrews was not a symbol of life. It was a symbol of death. You might remember that Pharaoh had commanded that all the baby Hebrew boys be cast into the Nile River and killed. And so when God tells Moses to go down to the Nile River and they strike the first plague on the Nile, this is God getting divine retribution against these fake Nile gods for the killing of those Hebrew babies. Chapter seven, verses 20 through 22 says this. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile and all the water was changed to blood. The fish in the Nile died and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. So Pharaoh, Moses, Aaron, they're all down there at the Nile River together. Pharaoh sees Aaron raise his staff and smacks the water. And Pharaoh's thinking, what? Real scary, you can hit your water with your sheep stick. What are you gonna do? And then there at the base of the staff, a little circle of red begins to grow and grow and grow. And then, boom, the whole river turns to blood. And the Nile, their source of life, became a source of death. Fish died, the river stank. Imagine going back to your house today, turning on the sink and blood comes out. God definitely got a knockout punch against these river gods here. This is devastating to Egypt, but still, Pharaoh's heart was hard and he still wouldn't let the people go. So God says, all right, let's go. Round two, chapter eight, verses one through three says, seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people and into your ovens and kneading troughs. And Pharaoh basically responds by saying, frogs? Really? Is that the best you can do? Real scary, ribbit, ribbit, I'm terrified. You see, the Egyptians, they also worshiped this frog god. And this frog god to them was a symbol of new life and fertility. And in fact, when the Egyptian midwives were delivering these little Egyptian babies, they would wear jewelry of these frog gods to bless the delivery process. And so again, when God sends this plague of frogs to decimate this frog god, it's him getting back at the Egyptians for what they did to the Hebrew babies. So let's take a pause here for a second. And as a side note, today is Mother's Day. I apologize for picking the worst Mother's Day text of all time. Please forgive me. So to those of you today who are moms or who will be moms or who wanna be moms, I just wanna say thank you. Because even in this text today, this is a violent text, it's a heavy text, but it does show us that God values the life of every baby. He knows and he cares for each one and he will defend and bring justice even for the ones who don't survive. So moms, you have an important job. Thank you. Happy Mother's Day. Now back to the frogs. So God says, oh, you like frogs, do you? We'll see how you like this. And boom, frogs everywhere over the whole land. I mean, you go to bed at night, frogs in your pillow. You get up in the middle of the night to walk down the hall and get a drink. You're walking on frogs down the hallway. Crunch, crunch, crunch. You're baking some bread, frogs in the oven. You're cutting into the bread, frogs in the bread. There's frogs everywhere. And finally, Pharaoh's so fed up with this. He says, Moses, Moses, just pray to God. Tell him to get rid of the frogs and I'll let the people go. But... 
then when the frogs leave, Pharaoh changes his mind and he won't set the people free. All right, round three. Time for our God to take out another one of Egypt's fake little gods. The Egyptians worship this god of the ground named Geb. But God takes one look at their wimpy little ground god and he basically just laughs at it. Chapter eight, verse 16 says, then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the, uh, the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. And that's just what happened. All the dust in the land turned to gnats. And you know, Egypt is a desert. There's a lot of dust in the desert. That's a lot of gnats. And I happen to think that gnats are some of the most despicable little creatures on the planet. They are just deplorable little organisms. Can I get an amen? Right? Yeah, you're out there on your back porch trying to enjoy a summer evening. And then this swarm of invisible little flying nuisances just attacks you. And they're up your nose and in your ears and in your eyes. They're everywhere and they're invisible and you can't hardly kill them. Imagine that over your whole country. It's just a swarm. I think God definitely beat their wimpy little ground God. Ding, ding, ding. God wins round three. But still, Pharaoh won't let the people go. So here comes round four. God says, chapter eight, verse 21, he says, if you don't let my people go, I'll send swarms of flies on you and on your officials and on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies. Even the ground will be covered with them. Of course, the Egyptians also worshiped two fly gods. And so God brings out his old, big old divine fly swatter to deal with them. And a giant swarm of flies attacks the whole land. Now, am I the only one, like when you're laying in bed in the summertime, you're trying to go to sleep and you guys know when there's like one fly buzzing around the room and it just drives you nuts. Am I the only one who feels that? Drives me insane. Imagine there being so many flies in your room that the wall was black. Imagine being in your bedroom and having to yell across the room at the top of your lungs just so your, house, your spouse can hear you over the buzzing of the flies. Ugh. How much do you think the Egyptians liked their fly god after this one? Yeah, not very much. But still, Pharaoh wouldn't let God's people go. So here comes round five. God sends a plague on all the Egyptian livestock, horses, donkeys, camel, cattle, sheep, goats, you name it. You see, the Egyptians, they worship this one god of their livestock, this cow god, which is kind of silly if you ask me, but they actually had a real life representation of this god, a sacred bull named Apis. And they would celebrate this sacred bull. They would pamper the bull on the bull's birthday. They'd bring the bull out and parade it around in front of the people and everybody would cheer for the sacred bull. And then when the bull would die, they'd mummify this bull. And you can actually go to Egypt today and see dozens of these sacred bull mummies. And yet their sacred bull couldn't protect the livestock. Looked what happens. Chapter nine, verses six and seven. It says, all the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Pharaoh investigated and found that not even one of the animals of the Israelites died. Yet his heart was unyielding and he would not let the people go. So imagine this. Like these plagues don't really just go away. By this point, there are piles and piles and piles of dead fish, dead frogs all over the land, rotting. And then on top of that, we have bloated cow carcasses strewn across the landscape as far as you can see. Their sacred bull is now just ground beef, all right? And yet even then, with the scent of death in his nostrils, Pharaoh still won't listen. 
Fine, God says. You want to keep fighting? I got more where that came from. Chapter nine, verses eight and nine. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from a furnace and have Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh. And it'll become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt and festering boils will break out on people and animals throughout the land. So that's what Moses does. He throws these ashes into the air and for animals and people all over the land, they get these boils. Now boils, they're these big, nasty sores. Imagine chicken pox, but like a hundred times worse. They're just big and bloody and gross and lots of pus. It's nasty stuff. I'm not going to show you any pictures. I don't feel like throwing up this morning. Cool? All right. Now, the, the Egyptians, they also worship this God of healing and medicine who is supposed to protect them from such things, but that didn't do very well in the face of the bulls, or the boils, excuse me. And then also, the Egyptian priests of any of the gods, but the Egyptian priests, in order for them to perform their religious duties, their bodies had to be 100% pure, spotless, clean, blameless, no blemishes, no sores, no nothing. So when all these Egyptian priests get boils on their bodies, they can't perform their duties. The entire religious system of the Egyptians comes screeching to a halt. So who do you think has the power? The religion of Egypt or our God? Pretty clear who wins this one, right? You'd think. And yet, Pharaoh just doesn't get it. It keeps getting worse for him. Chapter nine, verse 12 says, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said to Moses. And by this point, Pharaoh, he's too far gone. He's refused to listen He's refused to obey. He has hardened his heart over and over and over again. And so now God hardens Pharaoh's heart. He says, all right, fine, have it your way. And he lets him go. And it only gets worse from here for Pharaoh because the next four plagues are aimed right at his core and it will end up destroying him. Chapter nine, verses 13 through 18, God says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you. He's saying, hey, I've been holding back. I've been going easy on you. Just give it up. You see, this is God's mercy here. He's giving Pharaoh another chance. God could have wiped Pharaoh out in one plague, but instead he gives him chance after chance after chance to repent. This is God's grace, even in the midst of his judgment. God says, for by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's why we're calling this sermon God's power. That's the point of these plagues. If you walk away remembering one thing from this story, remember that God is strong. And he says to Pharaoh, he says, you still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. And so round seven begins. 
God takes one look at the Egyptian sky god and sky goddess and he decimates them. And from the sky, God brings hail and lightning and thunder that shred the land of Egypt to pieces. This is the worst storm in Egypt's history. It annihilates plant, animal, person, anything in its path. It must be kind of hard to worship the gods of the atmosphere when you can't go outside, huh? The whole land is wrecked by this hailstorm, except where the Israelites lived. So round seven goes to ding, 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 you guessed it, our God. And finally, Pharaoh gives in, or at least it looks like he gives in. He begs Moses to pray to God, make it stop. Okay, fine, I'll let the people go, he says. But as soon as the hail stops, he changes his mind, he hardens his heart, and he refuses to set them free. Round eight. Again, God says, let my people go. And if not, I'll I'll bring a plague of locusts on your land. But Pharaoh, at this point, even though he's beat up and broken down, he still won't obey. The Egyptians, they worship this God named Seth, who is supposed to protect their land from storms and natural disasters, things like a plague of locusts. And yet, Seth wasn't strong enough to do anything. Our God's stronger. Chapter 10, verses 13 through 15 says, so Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt And the Lord made an east wind blow across the land all that day and all that night. By morning, the wind had brought locusts. They invaded all Egypt and settled down in every area of the country in great numbers. Never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again. They covered all the ground until it was black. They devoured all that was left after the hail, everything growing in the fields and the fruit on the trees. Nothing green remained on tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. Now, locusts, they are these amazing, terrifying little creatures that can swarm in groups of billions, forming a dark cloud of destruction that can literally blot out the sun for hundreds of miles. These little bugs can destroy an entire nation without thinking twice about it, and that's what they do. It says there's not a single leaf or blade of grass left in the whole country. Pharaoh begs Moses to pray to God, make it stop. And so Moses does. But again, Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. And by this point, even the people are turned against Pharaoh. They're saying, just let him go. We can't stand any more of this. Pharaoh and the whole country, they're beaten down. They're on the brink of destruction. And yet Pharaoh still thinks he can outlast God. And so, plague number nine attacks Egypt's greatest god of all, Ra, the sun god the sun god of the Egyptians. And Pharaoh himself was actually said to be the embodiment of Ra, the embodiment of the sun god. So Pharaoh thought he was a god. He thought he was Ra. But our god, the one who, you know, like actually made the sun and called into being the light and separated it from the darkness, well, he has something to say about that. Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 through 23, says, then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. So God sends total darkness on the land. Now, it's kind of dark in here right now, and if you tried to maneuver your way around, you might stumble or something, but there's still plenty of light, right? We could, we could probably get around. 
And in reality, we're very rarely in a place where it's completely dark. Most of the time we have a little bit of light. And yet it says that this was total darkness. This is a darkness so deep that it could be felt. This is a darkness that cuts to their very core. This is a darkness that takes everything they think they know, their entire worldview, their entire paradigm, based on the greatness of Ra, the great sun god, and it exposes him for what he is, a sham who has no power. This is a darkness that takes Pharaoh, this great ruler who they worshiped as a god, and it reveals him to be a fraud. He's no god, he's just a man. A stubborn, foolish man who rebelled against the living God and is being tossed around like a rag doll. Okay, fine, Pharaoh says, fine. Take your people, worship the Lord as you have requested. But then when the lights come back on, (laughs) Pharaoh changes his mind and he won't let the people leave. And so there's one more plague to come. Number 10. And this would be the knockout punch, the worst plague of all. God told the people to paint the doorposts of their houses with the blood of a lamb. And that night, when God saw the house that was painted with the blood of a lamb, he would pass over that house and spare them from death. But for the houses who were not covered by the blood of a lamb, the houses of the Egyptians, God came and killed all the firstborn. Chapter 12, verses 29 through 32 says, At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night. There was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up! Leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go! Worship the Lord as you've requested. Take your flocks and your herds as you've said and go. And also, bless me. Finally, finally it looks like Pharaoh's broken. And yet, as we'll see in a couple weeks, it doesn't stick. But at this point, God has taken the entire lifestyle, the entire worldview, the entire way of being, the entire religious system of the Egyptians, and he has systematically dismantled it, plague by plague, revealing that he alone is the one who has power, that he has established over and over and over again, 10 times over, who is the real God? The people of Egypt, they worshiped Pharaoh as a God, but he was no God, he was just a man, a man who decided to fight against the one true God, a man whose heart was stubborn and hard and cold and God made it very clear on that night as the screams of grieving mothers echoed throughout the city that there was only one God and it was not Pharaoh and so at this point the round's over the fight's done the victory's clear the gods of Egypt the evil of Pharaoh they are no match for the God of Israel who's also my God and is also your God This is a heavy story. It's a sobering text. This is a remarkable story. It's a true story. This is a timeless demonstration of God's great power. But so what? What bearing does this account actually have on our lives today? 
Well, let me just go out and draw three quick warnings from this text for us today. Here's warning number one. Don't forget who is God. Don't forget who is God. I've heard it said that the difference between you and God is that God doesn't think he's you. Because <laughs> we often like to play God, don't we? We like to think we've got it in control. We like to do it our way. But really, if God is God, then I am not. That's what we learned last week. There is a God and it is not me. And so there's several different reasons for why these plagues happened. But the one overarching reason is so that people both then and now will know that the Lord is the one true God. We see this purpose statement over and over again in the text. Exodus chapter 7 verse 5 says, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Exodus chapter nine, verse 14, I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, God says, I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. And this same God who asserts his dominance over the gods of the Egyptians and all the false gods that we worship today, this is the same God who we are here worshiping this morning. This is the same God who is powerful. We're talking about how God has power and the big fancy theological word for that is that God is omnipotent. He is all powerful. He is the owner of all the power that is to be had. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. This text makes it very clear that even creation bends to do his will. So we have to walk out from this account today knowing that there is no other God, there is no other power, there is nothing and no one like our God and he will never be beaten. So don't forget who is God. Second warning is this, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. This text here is a contest between Pharaoh's will and God's will. Over and over again, God says, let my people go. And over and over again, Pharaoh responds, okay, I will, when you make the plague, stop. And then they stop and Pharaoh hardens his heart and he refuses to obey. So to harden your heart is to hear what God is asking you to do and to refuse to do it. And now if you're anything like me, you read through this story and you think, come on, Pharaoh, what are you doing? God is clearly the one who is in control here. Why don't you just obey him and life will go a whole lot better for you? This is crazy. And yet how many times has that been us? And how many times has that been me that we get pumped full of God's truth on Sunday, but then when the rubber really meets the road on Monday and Tuesday, I just kind of choose to do my own thing? How many times has that been us that we come here on a Sunday morning, we play the little church game, we come, we sing the songs, we hear the truth, we take communion, we say all the nice Christian things, and then we go do whatever we want. You come here and you hear God's truth. I hear God's truth on a Sunday morning and we refuse to respond, we refuse to obey. And the, the thing is that every time we hear God's truth and we refuse to respond to it in obedience, our heart gets a little harder. Every time that you know what you're supposed to do and you choose not to do it, your heart gets a little harder and it gets just a little bit more difficult for God's light to break through. So if that's you today, if you come here and you hear the truth and you never respond, you're on very dangerous ground. Please don't harden your heart. Don't forget who is God. 
Don't harden your heart. And the third warning is this. Don't be caught unprepared. Don't be caught unprepared. In Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, it kind of tells us a lot about what's going to happen when Jesus comes back at the end of time. And in, in Revelation, we see all these cataclysmic events that remind us a lot of the 10 plagues. In Revelation, we see uh, darkness and hail and frogs and the sea turns to blood and locusts and fire and so, so much more. Except this time, it's not just Egypt. This is God's judgment poured out on the whole world. And that day will come. And when that day comes, just like with the 10 plagues, there will be a distinction between those who are God's people and those who are not. And for those of us who are God's people, when that day comes, we're going to be safe. We're going to be just fine. Nothing to worry about. And for those who've chosen not to follow God, they will be ruined for all eternity. And so the choice is yours. Because make no mistake, the scripture is very clear, and we just got done singing it. On that day, every knee will bow and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he alone is the one true God. Every knee will bow. Moses will be there on his knees and Pharaoh will be there on his knees and I'm gonna be there on my knees and you're gonna be there on your knees. Every knee will bow and he will find glory in you on that day when his wrath is poured out. He will either find glory in saving you, in showing you his mercy, in sparing you from his judgment because you trusted in the blood of his son, or he will find glory in pouring out his wrath upon you and judging you because you chose to trust yourself instead. This is a story of God's wrath, it's a story of God's judgment rightly deserved. But it's also a story of God's grace. And it's a story of God's mercy. Because the fact of the matter is, I deserve every one of those plagues. The Israelites deserved every one of those plagues. I mean, how many times have I rebelled against God over and over and over again? How many times have I hardened my heart? I deserve all 10 of those plagues and a whole lot more. And yet God, you know what he could have done to Pharaoh? He could have just said, boom, death of the firstborn, you're done, had your chance. But he doesn't. And I'm reminded in this story that this God that we're here worshiping today is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances. And he's given you a chance today. He's given you a chance. I don't know if it's your second chance or if it's your tenth chance, and you don't know either. But he's given you a chance today, so don't mess it. Don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Back in the days of the American frontier, sometimes a wildfire would sweep across the plains at breakneck speed, and it was going so fast that the pioneers, they would have no way to run. There was no way they could escape this massive wall of fire that was heading their way. And so the only hope for their survival was to, to light a fire there on a small plat, patch of the prairie and to burn a patch of ground. And then they would hunker down on that burned patch of ground in the hopes that when this massive wall of flames caught up to them, it would pass over them and consume everything in its path except for this burned patch of ground and they would be spared. It's their only hope for survival. Hear me, church. 
Jesus is our burned patch of ground. Jesus is the one who absorbed the wrath of God on your behalf so that you do not have to. He is where you find shelter from God's fiery judgment. And this is where we see God's power and God's wrath and God's mercy most fully displayed in Jesus. Because in Jesus, when he comes, again, we see God's power. And in Jesus, when he comes, again, we see that creation bends to do his will. Except this time, creation bends not bringing destruction, but bringing healing. Because Jesus comes and the water turns not to blood, but to wine. And Jesus comes and the storms are calmed. And Jesus comes and the diseases are healed. And Jesus comes and the demons are cast out. And all of a sudden, the all-powerful God of the Old Testament is again walking among his people, asserting that yes, he is the one true God and his name is Jesus. And then Jesus dies, taking the wrath of God for our rebellion and our hard-heartedness so that we would not have to. The firstborn of God was slain on a day of divine darkness. And in the blood of the lamb, we are passed over, spared from death and given life. He alone is our hope. And in the blood of the lamb, we are spared and someday judgment will come and this earth will be destroyed with fire. So on that day, don't be caught unprepared. Be sure you're standing on that burned patch of ground at the foot of the cross. Because on that day, those of us who've trusted in Jesus will be safe. And we will finally be set free. Will you pray with me? Oh, awesome and strong God. We come before you desperately in need of your mercy, recognizing that because of our rebellion and because of our hard-heartedness, we deserve the full extent of your wrath. We deserve your judgment. We deserve to be consumed. And yet, Father, we recognize that we see your power and your strength displayed most fully, not actually in the 10 plagues, but in the cross of Jesus and in the empty grave. And so we come and in this time we worship you for using your power to save us. That we could find shelter, salvation, and rescue in the blood of your son. Thank you, God. And so Father, it's my prayer in this moment for any in this room who have hardened their hearts, who have heard your truth time and time and time again and have delayed responding, who've heard your message over and over and over again have never really done anything about it, I pray that you would soften their heart in this moment and that you would give them the courage to respond because you are always strong enough to save. We love you and we worship you. Thank you, strong God. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray, amen.